Is the Bible one story? Or is it a collection of related but sometimes contradictory stories? And does it matter which one it is? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Today we're going to answer those questions in our lesson by explaining what's called progressive revelation. It's a big term with a simple meaning that's incredibly important for you to understand in determining if the ultimate author of the Bible is God. So let's get started. Our topic for today is the Bible, Human Story or Divine Revelation, Part 2, with thoughts on progressive revelation. In our previous lesson, we talked about how important it is to understand what it means that God is outside of time and able to see the past, present, and future simultaneously, and thus give us true prophecy about what's in the Bible. He tells us what will happen in the future, and when it happens, this is one of the best evidences for the reality that God is the overall author of the Bible. Now, I have a very helpful chart on this that is on the Bible805.com website. And by the way, I changed it from when I did the first podcast and video on this, so um, if you downloaded it, go back because I, I think there's a, actually a much better one that I created. And if you haven't listened to listened to or watched that particular lesson, please do that because it's very important and it's a good foundation for this one. But in this lesson, we're going to look at two more considerations that show that God is the author of the Bible. The first one is the importance of true history. In other words, history based on real events. This is essential because if we don't have true history, if instead it's based on legends and fables, we can't check out prophecy because prophecy says something happened at a certain time. Well, either it did or it didn't. But if the whole thing was made up, you know, how do we know that doesn't help us at all? We will look at how the Bible writers got what they recorded as history to help us determine if it's true or not. Then the second thing we're going to look at, and this is where we will really take the bulk of the time, is talking about something that's called progressive revelation. This is where an important theological concept, such as salvation through the sacrifice of a sinless offering, is not presented in the Bible all at once, but revealed in successive steps throughout maybe hundreds, thousands of years of history. It can be a complex topic, but I have a really simple explanation that I'll talk about that I trust will make quite a lot of sense. And then we'll clarify some related questions that come up with topics that we've been talking about, progressive revelation, history, etc. The first one it concerns God's control, his sovereignty and human responsibility. In other words, the question, and we need to deal with this, am I just a puppet? Do I have free will? You know, if God's determined all these things, if he's outside of history, if he can control stuff, you know, where am I? You know, what responsibility do I have? And then also we're going to just talk briefly about the reality that Christianity has a linear view of time and history and why this is really important in how we apply what we're talking about. The importance of true history, because if the history isn't true, prophecy has no meaning. 
The concept of true history is in contrast to the legend-based or fable-based history of many other religions or belief systems. For example, in Buddhism, they freely state that they aren't sure if the, their beliefs about the Buddha's life or actions are true, and then they also go on to say it doesn't really matter if they are or not. Now, I'm not making this up. Um, please see the series on how truth and history confirm that we can trust the Christian Bible for more on this. And I apologize, I am recording this in January of 2021, and I'm still revising some of the things on that lesson. But within the next couple of weeks, it will be done, and it's actually a whole four-part series that will help you see how other religions record their history and how very, very different that this is to the way the Christian Bible records its. Moving along on our topic for today, in contrast, this is how Eugene Peterson explains the importance of true history in his introduction to the historical books in the Bible. He does this in his message translation where he says, For a biblical people, God is not an idea for philosophers to discuss or a force for priests to manipulate. That is why these books, referring to the historical books of the Old Testament, immerse us in dates and events, in persons and circumstances, in history. God meets us in the ordinary and extraordinary occurrences that make up the stuff of our daily lives. History is a medium in which God works salvation, just as paint and canvas is a medium in which Rembrandt made creative works of art. This deeply pervasive sense of history the dignity of this place in history, the presence of God in history, accounts for the way in which the Hebrew people talked and wrote. They did not, as was the fashion in the ancient world, and parentheses on my part, and I would say many today, make up and embellish fanciful stories. But how do we know that the Bible writers talk about history that's true? How do we know that it really happened? And how do we know that they just didn't make it up? So let's take a brief look at the written and oral history sources for the biblical writers as we would for any other historical account. And by the way, I'm going to give you just some brief information on this right now, but as we go through the Bible, I will show you archaeological proofs and all of the sort of related things for the individual books as we go through them. But first of all, though inspired, the biblical writers used primary sources, not legends and made-up stories, just as any historian would. The biblical writers didn't just sit down and say, well, you know, there was this, there was that, there was the other. They actually used other sources. And there are many, many places in the Bible where they refer to this. Here are just a few examples. In First Chronicles 29, 29-30, it says, As for the events of King David's reign, from beginning to end, they are written in the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer together with the details of his reign and power, and the circumstances that surrounded him and Israel and the kingdoms of all the other lands. You know, I, I think about this uh, this passage, and I remember when I've been reading the Bible, and at the end of a lot of books it says, and these events were also recorded, and blah, 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 and these events were also... You know, I just used to skip that and think, well, yeah, so what, blah, blah. Um, but that's really important because what the writer is saying is what I'm writing down agrees 
with all of these other books. Now, some of the, the comments in what made it into the biblical manuscript obviously are going to be different than some of the others, but they are based on true history. And this is also true in the New Testament. Um, in Luke, the, Dr. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And now is not the place to talk about this, but Dr. Luke was just an absolutely meticulous historian, and when you get into his book in detail, every single thing in it, from the titles of people to literally the names of streets and all kinds of things like this, uh, many of them have been proven to be exactly accurate through archaeology and other resources. As we start our study of the Bible, Moses um, is, of course, accredited as being the writer of the first five books of the Bible and by the way of Job, which I'll talk about more in the next lesson. But at that time, there were most likely many written records. And the Amara tablets, which I have a little picture of that on the video, they are a source that um, they discovered that not that many years ago. And they show that there was extensive writing at the time. Early on, they said that, oh, you know, Moses couldn't have used other sources because nobody wrote anything and we don't think he even did it because writing wasn't uh, people were all illiterate then. That's absolutely false and they have since uncovered literally thousands of these small clay cuneiform tablets and the people in that time they wrote about everything. We have the most detailed records of uh, how many bushels of wheat went to this and correspondence between this person and correspondence between that person and there was extensive writing going on at that time. So Moses most likely had access to different resources. And then also, there was another thing that made his information much closer to the primary resources, and that is oral history. The power of oral history. When historians evaluate the validity of written documents, one of the most important criteria in determining if we can trust them is were there eyewitnesses? Did they preserve a record about what they saw? It makes a really big difference when we hear or even later re read the accounts from people who were actually there when things happened. Now, I have my own experience with this that I'd like to share with you. My adopted grandfather was at D-Day. Now we've all seen the pictures, we've all read the accounts of them hitting the beach and all of that kind of thing, but when he told me, and I helped kind of him write this little history of it, he talked about how before boarding the boats, the soldiers gave all their pocket change to the dock urchins because though they didn't know exactly where they were going, what was going to happen, most of them realized they wouldn't return, and so they gave away what they could. That made D-Day real to me.
And so when we have an oral history, when someone can actually say, I was there, I saw this, it's very powerful. Now, what's really interesting about the writers of the Old Testament is they had very unusual resources for this because of the really long lives in the Old Testament. There's a chart on the Bible 805 website that please go there and download it. It's really interesting. I'm going to describe it to you. Now, this is where um, I'm going to read you first a quote from the uh, CCEL website, and it talks about the importance of the long time spans and writing at that time. And then I'm going to explain it more in just a minute. Now, hang in there with me because this might be a little bit confusing, but it's really interesting. Um, On the CCEL website, it says, a careful examination of the biblical genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11 reveals that Adam lived till the time of Lamech, who was Noah's, Noah's father. Lamech to the time of Shem, Shem, Noah's son, Shem, who lived through the flood, to the time of Jacob. Jacob would without a doubt transmit all he knew to Joseph. Since even Abraham already lived in a literary age, and Judah carried a seal, and Joseph was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians, it seems utterly impossible that these men would have refrained from committing this valuable and reliable tradition to writing. And it's similar to what Kings and Chronicles testify in, the abundant use of source materials. Now, I have this chart that I, I really hope you look at to download. I didn't put this together. I've, I've cited who did and had permission to use this. But the lo- their long lives really allowed for the sharing of the record of God's actions in human history for many, many hundreds of years. Now, think about this. Um, and it's easier to imagine when you see the chart. But Adam was still alive when Noah's father was born. Now, Methuselah, who could have spoken to Adam, actually, when you look at the chart, he was probably, oh, lived to, a, you know, maybe close to 100 years before Adam actually died. Methuselah was alive. Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. Um, and he would have been alive when Noah was born. And, you know, if you think your grandpa had great stories, can you imagine that he actually was able to talk to the very first man created? It's really incredible when we think through those things. And then Noah's son, Shem, was still alive when Abraham was born. And Terah, his father, would have been able to talk to him. So when um, God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he would have known someone who actually lived through the flood. Oral history was always passed on, as well as documents. And too, as we know from many cultures that aren't widely literate, uh, people remember, remember oral history really well. They memorize what they heard. And both of these 
contribute to the validity of the history that was later written down. And again, please go to the Bible805.com website and look at this chart. It's really, really interesting. The importance of progressive revelation. This is our second topic, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this, but bear with me. This is something that's really important for you to understand. Because in addition to our previous lesson of God being outside time, this is one of the things that also helps us see God as the ultimate author of the entire Bible. But what is it? What is progressive revelation? Think of it this way. If you want to tell the story of something, there are two ways to do it. One, you can write a novel. Or two, you can assemble a collection of short stories. Now, the short story collection needs to be only loosely related to the topic. The individual stories can have a variety of authors. We don't expect them to agree with each other, and there's no true narrative arc to the entire collection. On the other hand, we expect a consistent narrative arc in a novel, a plot, a storyline, wherein, and this is what this is how Aristotle, who defined a lot of the structure of our literature, this is what he said about a storyline, a plot. He said, this is where the events of the plot must causally relate to one another as being either necessary or probable. Progressive Revelation assumes the Bible was written like a novel. I'll go over two examples of the plot lines that show this, but as I'm constantly repeating, you won't see this if you don't read the entire Bible, preferably in chronological order. If you jump around here and there, which is what most people do if they read it at all, it's easy to get the idea that the Bible is more like a collection of short stories. It's obvious different writers wrote about different wrote different books, and they seem to be writing about widely varied topics. If you don't read the whole thing, you'll miss the clear sense of one divine author behind the human authors. Now, the human authors wrote using their individual experiences, style, and vocabulary, but in a way that we don't have time to dissect today in this lesson, God breathed through them, inspired them to write their parts of the storyline in a way that perfectly meshed with the overall plot. First, I'll share the overall plot structure of the Bible, and then I'll share one specific example of progressive revelation in one specific topic in the Bible, and there are many of them. So, let me give you this overall example. Now, the following comments are how the parts of an overall plot are described, along with my comments on how the Bible fits into them. This is not, well, my comments are original with me, but the whole um, overall structure is not. In 1863, a man named Gustav Freitag, he was a German writer, he advocated a plot storyline model based on Aristotle's theory of tragedy, which divides a drama into five parts. And what I'm going to do is I will go through each part, and then I will uh, give you a brief commentary on how the Bible fits into that part. First of all, the exposition. This is the first phase. This introduces the characters, especially the main character, also known as the protagonist. It shows how the characters relate to one another, their goals and motivations, as well as their moral character. During the exposition, the protagonist learns what their main goal is and what is at stake. Now here's my commentary on it. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
God is the primary protagonist in all the Bible. As many other commentators have said, the Bible is his story. We sometimes think it's all about us, but no, it's all about God. All the other characters are subordinate to God, though their actions are meaningful. In the opening of Genesis, God created a world and placed humanity created in his image into a perfect garden. He met them there and he walked with them. Then the second thing is the rising action. Rising action is the second phase. It starts with a conflict. The event that catalyzes the protagonist to go into motion and take action. Rising action involves the buildup of events until the climax. In this phase, the protagonist understands his or her goal and begins to work toward it. Smaller problems thwart their initial success and their progress is directed primarily against the secondary obstacles. This phase determines how the protagonist overcomes these obstacles. And then my 805 commentary is, the catalyzing conflict in the Bible story, of course, is when humans, who God created for a relationship with himself, turn their back on him. And they do the one thing he told them not to do. They eat the forbidden fruit. They choose to believe the enemy of God, Satan, rather than God. The consequence is death. First, temporal, physical death, and finally, eternal death or separation from God. The only solution to the eternal death of his created creatures is for God himself to enter their broken world and to die for them. Now the Old Testament storyline is about God's preparation for this event, an explanation of how he will work it out, of who God is and what he expects. He can no longer walk with them. So he communicates through his word, the written scriptures that become our Bible, and through events in the lives of a chosen people. Just as this is the bulk of the novel, this is the majority part of our Bibles and much of human history. But God's not in a hurry. He takes his time to tell the story and prepare the world for the climax and falling action. Now the climax is the turning point or the highest point of the story. The protagonist makes the single big decision that defines not only the outcome of the story but also who they are as a person. And in my 805 commentary, of course, in the Bible, the climax is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In that, humanity sees the perfect man how they were designed to live, how humans were designed to live and obey God. And then that perfect man takes his life and offers it in the place of his creation. God the Father accepts the sacrifice. The enemy, Satan, and death are defeated. The falling action, which comes after it, this consists of events that lead to the ending. The character's actions then resolve the problem. My commentary, the 805 commentary on this is that in the Bible, the falling actions comes after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus back to heaven, where his disciples are charged with the task of sharing the message of salvation with the world. We're now in that part of the action. The denouement. In this phase, the protagonist and antagonist have solved their problems and either the protagonist or antagonist wins the conflict. The conflict officially ends.
Some stories show what happens to the characters after the conflict ends, or they show what happens to the characters in the future. Now, my 805 commentary is, of course, in the Bible, the denouement is at Christ's return to earth. The casting of Satan into the lake of fire, and then comes the creation of the new heavens and new earth, where God once again, physically and tangibly, walks with his people forever. Paradise Lost has become Paradise Regained. As C.S. Lewis says of the children, and one day each of us at the end of the last battle, he sums up this whole explanation of the plot in this way. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. The beginning of the real story. All their life and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. So I hope that that overall plot explanation helped you see how the Bible is really one whole plot, one story, one like a novel that all fits together. Now, let me just give you a specific example of progressive revelation in one teaching in the Bible. From the very start, the seed of all the key doctrines in the Bible, sin, redemption, grace, these are introduced in Genesis and Job, and I'm going to be talking about more of them next week in, in the next lesson. Then they're carried through the writings of the different authors in the Bible for over 1,500 years while the entire Bible was being written. Now, one example of this is the continuing plot line, the continuing progressive revelation that a sinless sacrifice was needed to pay for humanity's rebellion against the Creator. Early in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them with animal skins. When Abel made his offering pleasing to God, it was an animal sacrifice. Job offered animal sacrifices, so did Abraham. Now remember, these were all prior to the Levitical laws. The sacrifices then, their type, their purpose, their procedure, was clarified in great detail in the Levitical laws after the Exodus. And they then as it, this followed, became tied to the idea of a coming Messiah. Isaiah is very specific about this. The other prophetic writings refer to this also. But the people then had the idea that there were these pictures of the animal sacrifices, but someday there would be a Messiah who would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And that is why it was so extraordinary extraordinarily meaningful when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Obviously, he knew his Old Testament well. He knew what he was expecting. And when he saw Jesus, God let him know, This is a person. This is the sinless lamb that I've been talking about. And finally, all the previous teachings about sacrifices were fulfilled with Jesus' death on the cross and his uniqueness as the final satisfactory sacrifice in his resurrection, which the later New Testament writers go on to expand on and clarify until in the book of Revelation, John has that final vision of Jesus as both the lion and the lamb.
The plot line of a needed sacrifice for sin of an innocent winds through the entire Bible, through the centuries and the voices of many, but its truth is progressively revealed by the one author, God, behind it all. Jesus continually referred to this idea of progressive revelation, though you probably didn't think about that term before, in uh, many times during his life and ministry. He said, for example, in John 5.39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. He sa- he's saying, you know, look back at your Bible. It all talks about me. It's all one progressive revelation about me. In Luke 24, 27, he said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, not only Jesus, but the other New Testament authors refer to and confirm the progressive revelation of the Old Testament teaching as it was revealed. And, in fact, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted over 200 times. And, again, it's always part of progressive revelation. It's not talked about as a contradiction or a declaration that previous previous teachings were wrong or false. Paul also does this extensively in his writings and in his recorded way of teaching where he talks about, and this is constantly referred to in Acts, how he would go into a synagogue and show them how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messiah they were looking for. The book of Hebrews is also a primary example of this. It even begins by saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he He's spoken to us by his son. Now I want to share some concluding comments about progressive revelation. From progressive revelation, one can conclude that our Bible has one author, God, who worked through human authors, but it was God, the primary author, who kept in mind the whole plot, the story of salvation. Outside of time, God carefully planned, and though it took many centuries to tell it all, the basic plot lines, the key themes do not change, but expand as the books of the Bible unfold. The Bible in this way is much more like a coherent novel with one author than a collection of short stories loosely related by various authors. But you must read the entire Bible to see this. Also very important, this consistency of progressive revelation is unique characteristic of the Bible. Other religions totally change doctrines, ignore blatant contradictions, define progressive revelation as the option to change their mind about important topics, or upfront admit that they change it however and whenever they want. Again, please see, and I, I'm this, depending upon when you listen to this, I'm either still working on revising it or it's done. The four-part teaching series on how truth and history confirm we can trust the Christian Bible. Because I will have very, very specific examples of how this works out in other scripture and what is unique about the Christian Bible in that. But this brings up this whole thing about progressive revelation and God has everything planned and all that. This brings up a really troubling question. Does progressive revelation mean everything we do is fatalistically determined? If God has determined from eternity the plot of the Bible, we can't help but ask the question, what about me? Is my life a predetermined part of the plot plan? God's sovereign will over time and history versus human choice is the core question here. 
And <laughs> this illustration helped me to understand it. Again, it's really simple. You know, I have to take these big things and make them simple for me to understand. So I hope this, this works out well for you. But here, here is this idea. I didn't come up with it and I can't remember who I first heard it from, but it works for me. Anyway, human history, the big picture, the plot of the entire salvation history, it's like an ocean liner. The direction is certain. The route is set. The captain is in charge. It's his ship. His word is law. And the passengers have a copy of the law, his guidelines, his manual. It's the Bible, obviously, in this analogy, for them to get the most out of the journey. But, and here's what really helped me. Within the ship, the passengers are given quite a bit of freedom. Their plot lines aren't you know, inscribed in stone before they get on the ship. However, there is a place for an individual. They can't change the destiny of the ship, but their actions greatly affect their experience of the journey. Also, each passenger is responsible for his or her actions, his or her attitude, and based on them, what they will get or don't get out of the trip, and ultimately, where they will disembark. There is individual freedom whether they decide to be helpful, a peacemaker and joy producer to themselves and others, or a deadweight, a bore, a constant complainer, or someone that has to be thrown in the brig. The passengers do well to keep in mind that this is not a meandering pleasure cruise that never ends, but one with a definite destination and a harbor that will be reached because... Christianity has a linear view of time and history. It wouldn't be progressive revelation if it wasn't progressing towards something, a discernible endpoint. We kind of have to keep this in mind when we're on the ship of life and destiny, so to speak. In contrast, many religions believe in a cyclical view of time. Eastern religions, reincarnations, all of time in many religions just keeps going round and round and round. They call it samsara, uh, the indefinitely repeated cycles of birth, misery, and death caused by karma. Christianity is very different. It teaches a personal creator started it all, not impersonal matter, not karma. Genesis teaches creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. With that, our universe began. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And in addition to a clear beginning, Revelation 21 and many other places teaches us that a time will come when there will be an end to our present universe and the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth. Remember the earlier illustration that God created time, rules over all that happens, and will bring it to an end when he sees fit. Now, present applications, this gets back to our analogy of the ship. Um, and it's important that we think this through because time is linear, it will have an end. There is no reincarnation no do-overs. Uh, a lot of the appeal of some of these ways of thinking is, oh, if I mess up in this life, I can try again, or in the next one, or in the next one. No, the Bible is really clear. This is all there is. Though God is clearly in control of the ship of human history, and he wrote the guidebook, our Bible, for how to live it, he won't force us to read it. But we do best on the journey if we do. The guidebook also clearly tells each person they must choose 
where they want to disembark. Everyone is offered the chance to live with the captain and what he promises is a forever, extraordinary, solid and lasting home far different than the pitching seas, the storms, the sickness that have plagued the ship. If they don't want that, the captain warns them that there isn't any other land. They will drown in darkness. But it's their choice. And that isn't the that their ultimate destination isn't the only decision they have to make while they're on the ship. For those who've trusted the captain who want to join him in his forever home, the guidebook, the story given to all, tells them they're accountable for their time on the ship and how they use the resources they're given no matter where they find themselves, in first class or working in the galley, as a passenger only or one entrusted with greater responsibilities. But again, they aren't forced to read their guidebook or forced to obey it. It's up to each passenger, and I would say especially those given first-class passage, to realize that it isn't just a pleasure cruise for them, to simply live the best life now as if that ship is the only reality. There is work to be done. And one day, the journey will be over, and we, as we leave this earthly ship, each passenger will meet the captain. Now, C.S. Lewis puts this whole idea of a linear time and an end to it in a much better way than I do now. We're going to switch metaphors, but I think it works. He uses the metaphor of a play, but it's the same idea, that of a finite end to the Christian linear view of time. And what he says is, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. The curtain may be rung down at any moment. We do not know the play. The author knows. And we are led to expect the author will have something to say to each of us on the part that each of us has played. The playing it well is what matters infinitely. Bible 805 is committed to helping you play your part infinitely well. I hope from these lessons, through looking at God's view of time, history, and progressive revelation, that you've been become convinced that God, not humans, is the author of the Bible, and that the Bible is truly a book which teaches all that is necessary for faith and life, for living and dying and serving God forever, and that it should be an essential priority in your life to know it well and to live it obediently. That is what Bible 805 will help you do through podcasts, videos, print, wherever I can. And know that I am praying for all of you that listen to this, that you will take it so seriously that you will realize that our lives are finite, that we have great responsibilities, but we have a guidebook and a Savior to help us. And I want at the end of your journey to help you meet your captain, your Lord, your Savior with joy. In the next lesson, I'm going to get into the specifics of how Genesis and Job answer some of the big questions of life. So plan to join me for that and help make your journey through life a meaningful one. That's all for now. 
Check out the notes from this lesson, related resources, and helpful links at www.bible805.com. If the podcast has been useful to you, please consider supporting it through your donations and prayers. For a link to donate a small amount consistently, it is at the end of the description of the podcast on iTunes and on any of the other podcast resources you are listening to, or it's also on Bible805.com. Thank you in advance for your support and prayers. In closing, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.